Hello, and welcome back to the Eat Realty Heal podcast and this special episode, which is one of a nine-part series that focuses on the interviews that I did as part of my dissertation por by portfolio for my PhD research at Royal Roads University. Now, this research is really important given the state of our world, the fact that we have so many communities, not just across North America, but globally that don't have access to clean, fresh, real foods. And what is the reason behind that? So understanding the barriers that prevent people from accessing clean, fresh, whole foods that prevent and reverse chronic diseases is the topic of my research. And I've been so lucky to have nine incredible participants who gave hours of their time to share their expertise, their knowledge, their lived experience, their traditional ecological wisdom, their, their everything themselves with us so we can all collectively learn. I'm also really grateful to Royal Roads University for changing the way they allow doctoral students to present their research, the final product. In the past, most research was presented in a manuscript form 200 or 300 pages that often sat on a library shelf collecting dust with only maybe five or six people ever reading the research. Royal Roads University, they changed that and they want students to mobilize their knowledge. That means they want students to be able to finish their dissertation and get their research out into the world so the rest of the world can have access to it. In today's age, we have so much research that is closed and locked behind doors that only allowed the privilege to access it versus making it open source and available for every individual, especially individuals who may not have the ability or have the privilege or the, the financial resources or the capacity to be able to afford to go to school or the desire to go to school. But meanwhile, they still want to be able to access knowledge and learn. Royal Roads University is dismantling the way that knowledge is acquired from who it is acquired because we have to recognize the voices of the individuals with lived experience that often have more knowledge about their communities, their families, themselves, the state of the world, the state of our environment than the academics who sit behind closed doors doing research, but they're never out there with their hands in the soil or it's actually speaking to people. So by dismantling the way research is done and building up a new way that we can mobilize the research that is conducted to allow more people to have access to it, we are centering the voices of the past, the present and the future. And we are centering the voices of those individuals that don't often get asked for their knowledge and their expertise. So on today's episode, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Nana Kwaku Opare, who is a medical doctor. It's a, a medical consumerism. Um, it's a, it's a nutritional, nutritionist entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so we, we, we feel entitled to be entertained. Um, and we feel like we, if we, our food isn't entertaining, our food isn't interesting, then we don't want it. It's not mm -hmm. worthwhile. Mm -hmm. um, and the easiest way to make it entertaining and interesting is to make it addictive. Yeah. <laughs> so you just bliss point people out and it's very entertaining. You know, dopamine release every time you eat it. You know, it's like, hey. So 
I, it's, I don't know what to, I don't know what to answer. And hopefully, one of the things that intrigued me about your 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 the direction which you're going is, is is essentially the questions that need to be answered. You know, how do you how do you how do you make change happen? And I, and I pray that you 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 gather insight and you're able to synthesize things in such a way that um, there you can there are action steps that that those of us who are interested in actually making an impact can take can actually make a benefit but things that we've forgotten things that we've overlooked things that we don't do or things that we do do that we don't emphasize enough and I'm praying that, that you're gonna you're gonna make an impact on that and that's why I'm, 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 I'm sitting here today and I'm basically laying out to you as plainly and as, as I can what I think is going on. Now, Dr. Opare is a physician, author, and health coach who specializes in holistic and integrative medicine. He has been practicing medicine for over 30 years, and his areas of expertise include internal medicine, psychiatry, and addiction medicine. Dr. Opare has a strong focus on lifestyle medicine and believes that many chronic diseases can be prevented and reversed through changes in diet, exercise, stress management, and other lifestyle factors. And we agree with him because we do that work every single day at Richer Health through our Eat Real to Heal programs. In addition to his medical practice, Dr. Opare is also a prolific author and educator. He has written several books on the topics related to health and wellness, including The Rule Book and User Guide for Healthy Living, Disease Proof Your Child, which I think every person needs to have this copy and read it, and Vibrant Living, Vegan Starter Guide. He also offers online courses and coaching programs to help individuals and families make positive changes to their health and well-being. Dr. Opare is a deep is deeply committed to promoting health equity and has worked to address health disparities in underserved communities, both in the United States and abroad. And currently, Dr. Opare is living and doing incredible work in Africa. And I really hope that you all have the opportunity to do one of his programs. So please head over to his website, get connected with him. And please share this episode. If you loved it, please share it with your loved ones and go back and listen to all nine episodes of this nine part Eat Real to Heal doctoral research series. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you. Have an amazing day and amazing time listening to this episode. So welcome everybody to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am Nicolette Richet, your host. And today is our eighth interview in a series of 12 podcasts that we are, that I am doing uh, collectively that we are doing with our research participants on behalf of my doctoral research. And if you've been listening to the other eight interviews or other seven interviews, you know that my research question is, what are the barriers that we see currently that are preventing indigenous, black, South Asian, Asian people of color from access from accessing the real quality foods, the real whole foods, the traditional foods, that are capable of reversing disease. But of course, within that, there's a whole host of questions beyond what are the barriers, but what are the opportunities? And also, let's go beyond what our current governments are saying are the root cause of the chronic diseases 
that are afflicting BIPOC peoples at four to 10 times higher rates than non-BIPOC people. So we know that the root cause is not obesity. We know the root cause is not alcoholism. We know the root cause is not lack of exercise. We have to go further beyond that to truly get to the bottom, the heart of why BIPOC people are experiencing chronic disease rates at such epidemic highs. And also, not even BIPOC people's we are suffering one in two people die from heart disease. Uh, one in three people are diagnosed with diabetes. One in two people are being diagnosed with cancer. And this is a global issue. But really what we're truly addressing is why the rates are higher among BIPOC peoples. So on today's show, on today's interview, I would like to welcome Dr. Opare, MD, to the show who has decades and decades of experience in the field of medicine, in helping people understand all of these issues that are upon us. So welcome, Dr. Opari, to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here, and I'm glad to uh, be of help. I'm very glad that you're here as well. Um, so we got to chat briefly, and so based on that introduction to this interview, um, I want to hand the floor over to you because you are a voice that needs to be heard in the world, that has been heard in the world, and I am sure you have so many stories. But in addition to that, you have, you know, um, institutional knowledge that you've learned in university and school. You have real life knowledge. And with the work that I'm doing using narrative inquiry, it's to capture all of those stories for this research so we can better understand what is happening in our world today. So what is the first thing that came up for you when I, when I led with that introduction? Um, I think, uh, uh, Nicolette, the the question is, what difference does it make anyway um, on what we eat? Mm. And that 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 has to really be addressed because within the standard practice of medicine, that's really under play to begin with. Um, and so I think scientifically, it's really clear um, what makes a difference um, and but connecting the science and connecting the practice is is the question how do we how do we do that and that's what we're trying to get at um choices everyone has choices or, or so we think we have choices um, and so what drives those choices? Is, 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 is I think what we have to get at. Um, and so we have to get, ask questions of not just um, appetite or, 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 or preference, taste and flavor. Um, we have to ask questions not just availability um, because just having it available doesn't necessarily make a difference. Uh, we have to ask questions of cultural cultural aspects, um, but I think it, it diving, we have to really dive really deep um, because culturally, at least 
And I think I think your 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 uh, listeners deserve to hear my background a little bit. So I'll deal into that. Um, culturally, the the, the precedent is there for eating healthy, um, and at least from my focus, at least right now in East Africa. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about my background. Um, uh, I have quite a bit of formal training um, specifically related to the topic. Um, my, uh, I was born in America um, and, uh, and I'm 65 years old now. And I went to college at uh, Berkeley, well, finished my degree in food, nutrition and dietetics. And then went on to uh, do a combined uh, Master's of Public Health and MD program uh, with Berkeley and University of California, San Francisco. Um, following that, I did, uh, um, and having been thoroughly disillusioned in the practice of medicine, to the degree that I even quit medical school. Um, well, I had no intention of going back initially, but uh, during my third year, but I had the presence of mind to uh, call a leave of absence. <laughs> and that's what I ended up making it. And I went on to go ahead and get my MD degree and do my internship um, and transitional internship. And then instead of doing a traditional residency, I decided to learn some medicine that I thought really was effective to make a difference. Um, and that's traditional Chinese medicine. So I uh, matriculated at the San Francisco College of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine and did my, completed my um, Chinese medicine curriculum there, got certified in acupuncture, and then went on to uh, open a, a, do a dual career, uh, both in traditional Chinese medicine and um, standard medicine, practicing ER medicine, and that later transitioned into primary care adult medicine, and addiction medicine and urgent care. And then finally, I think the last 15 years or so of my practice in America, I found that um, occupational medicine was the least objectionable, uh, especially that I could do. And so I did occupational medicine on one hand, and then on the other hand, I did my um, combined integrative practice, um, which uh, um, having moved to Atlanta, started out as the Pari Integrative Healthcare, and that morphed into the Pari Institute, and now as the Pari African Institute. Um, I uh, immigrated to Tanzania um, from Atlanta in uh, 2016, and I live uh, currently, that's where I'm speaking to you from, is Arusha, Tanzania. Um, I'm in the outskirts of Arusha, Tanzania, in a very beautiful rural place called Utha River. <laughs> Couldn't get out of America. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, my interest in, 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 in nutrition goes back 50 years. And it goes back into, but it, my issue, issue interest in veganism um, really didn't start until well, after I graduated from, from college and medical school, because my medical school taught eggs were the best protein and um, gave no discussion whatsoever in college or at medical school or anywhere 
of the value of of, of, of uh, veganism or or the the, the adverse effects of uh, eating animals. Um, but gradually, I started learning on my own and doing my own research, um, picking up interest in fasting and uh, develop expertise in juice fasting. And it's one of the main tools I've used at the Apari Institute is, is a, a juice fast. As a matter of fact, I wrote a book called The Optimum Fast um, on my special specific technique that I've developed over the years when using a juice fast and, and therapeutic um, therapeutic juice fast. And then um, gradually I started transitioning how I ate myself. Um, from everything when I was in college to gradually cutting down on the high fat that beef, pork products, eventually chicken. And the last uh, five years or so that I was eating animal products, I only ate fish. And then the last couple of years, only very rarely. Um, <clears throat> since uh, 96, I've been vegan. And uh, during large portions of those periods of time, uh, between was that the last 26 years, I've had um, periods where I, a year and a half at a time, several times, uh, I eat raw vegan. Um, and so now I eat a high raw um, vegan diet, a lot of much of which I, I grow in my own um, yard. Um, here in the Usa River. Um, one of the nice things about this climate in the Usa River is we're in a tropical alpine. We're at the foot of Mount Meru, uh, about 4,500 feet above sea level, which means that I can grow greens and lettuce all year round. And so uh, I pretty much eat greens and lettuce every day and lots of fruits and et cetera. My interest in, in, in nutrition also has always been from a public health standpoint. So um, I uh, always was focused on, on helping as many people as possible heal and avoid getting sick. Um, and it became clear and it's become clearer and clearer now, especially with the easy availability of, of, of solid research Thanks to a large part of on the singular work of uh, Michael Greger and his team um, putting out nutrition facts that saved me hours and untold hours of combing the literature myself mm -hmm. and untold, untold hours at the copy machine copying off articles that I give to my patients, which I no longer have to do. I just send them a link yeah. to a video on the topic so they can actually see research on things. So... And do you find um, it, can I jump in there and ask, there's a couple questions coming up for me. Do. You know, one of the things that you mentioned is the fact that, you know, you've gone through extensive training, medical school training, Chinese medicine training, um, you know, researching about nutrition. And I'm going to assume you just weren't reading people's blogs, like you were diving into the scientific literature around this, Right. So here's someone who has um, all of this education, but compare that to individuals who've never gone to med school, who've never, um, you know, even gone to post-secondary school. Like, would you say just lack of education is one of the factors that are making, are, is making our society sick? And it's not from lack of information. 
we have those published studies, decades and decades of published studies showing that a plant-based diet, that a vegan diet is optimal for our health. But that information is not getting through to medical doctors. It's not getting through to the nurses. It's not getting through to the people who work in the healthcare system. So how is our health, how are people who use the healthcare system supposed to even know this? Well, education, you, you said it in your question. Education isn't the answer because nurses and doctors and dietitians to a large degree um, have education, but they don't have the right type of information. Um, the I think overall the the issue is is the you 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 can't separate what people eat from the political and economic and social conditions of which they're eating in, and I think that's the main key. Um, there's very very powerful uh, economic forces that drive um, the um, advice that is given by doctors that you see in the news media that are very much invested um, through interlinked industries in maintaining a, a, a poor quality of diet. When I say interlinked industries, I mean agriculture, agro-petrochemicals, agro um, pharmaceutical chemicals, um, insurance industry, medical industry, medical technology industries all have a stake and hospital industries all have a stake in maintaining the type of diet that people eat today. And so they, in relationship with the, their power in the mass media, um, will continue to put out a stream of misinformation to further their economic interests. Mm -hmm. And so the only way that to begin to combat that is to actually have some basic scientific background of fundamental basic rooting in nutrition. Uh, for example, um, you know, people say, well, how do they say you're vegan? Well, how do you get your protein? And then I ask people, I said, well, <clears throat> just let me, let me, I just want to be clear so that we're on the same page. Um, I know what I mean when I say protein. What do you mean when you say protein? Mm -hmm. Or salt, for example, or what do you, you know, or salt, salt or sugar, like, or fat. What do you mean when I say fat versus, you know, what does this person over here mean or the person in the supplement company or, you know, that's the problem is we use these generic terms, but that are actually rooted deeply in science and science would not be so generic with these terms, but it feels like the public is only hearing these very high level terms. So then it becomes very confusing. Precisely. So if you don't know what protein actually is, then it's very easy for someone to say, well, you need a lot of protein. If you don't know that, um, you don't need to eat complete protein, quote unquote, complete protein, which I was taught in school. And, 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 uh, and Berkeley is one of the best schools of nutrition in the nation. As a matter of fact, my, my advisor co-discovered three vitamins. And my chair of the department is one of the main people who did protein nutrition fundamental research at the human experimentation station at Berkeley. They still were saying false information about protein. You don't need to eat complete protein. You just need to eat proteins that have all the amino acids, not necessarily in the ratio that you need to have. So 
if you don't understand protein, if you, if you don't understand, if you if you're if you're ignorant, it's easy to, to convince you that you know something, and it's easy for you to believe that you're wise. Um, with that old saying, the people who who think they know the most are often the people who are the least informed, and so it's easy to if you have no basic fundamental background and stuff to 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 fool you. But I at the end of the day. Um, I don't think that knowledge of nutrition is the key um, because there's always limitations on science anyway. Um, and science lies um, and, uh, because there's money behind it. Um, and I mean, the question that we're trying to get at ultimately is let's, 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 let's take Tanzania as an example, or East Africa as an example. In, uh, in uh, college, in studying public health nutrition, we, it was very, very famous for East Africa, um, mostly because of the work of this guy named um, Burkitt. Um, Burkitt was an a English um, physician, surgeon, who um, ended up as a, pre, as a colonial chief of uh, minister of health in Uganda um, back in uh, late colonial times. And he was very famous for his research showing that um, public health research showing that heart disease, cancer, strokes were exceedingly uncommon in East Africa. Um, Meaning that if you had a patient that had a myocardial infarction, then you would um, report that to the literature. It's that rare. Um, and he related that specifically to diet. And he did research showing that the traditional African, traditional East African diet eaten by the average person was plant-based with very little um, animal products included. And he most notably was um, very famous for his work with fiber um, in terms of noting out the effects of dietary fiber and how important that is in terms of maintaining your, in, your, your, your health. So what does that say to me? That says to me that within my lifetime, people of my age and older grew up eating a diet that protected them in East Africa from the main killers that we have today. So there's collected wisdom among the elders who are respected largely still in East Africa um, for how to eat well and not develop these diseases. So, if then if that knowledge is still in living knowledge, it's not you not historical, it's living. If that's there and people know how to how to eat to stay healthy, then why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing it? And so I've 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 done a lot of work here in, in, in uh, Arusha with the with the government hospital, with the district hospitals and work with the uh, diabetic clinic. And we found that 
um, in our education with our patients. And diabetes is epidemic at, at, uh, in, in, in Russia among the rural population. The rural population, we're talking about the peasantry, the people who live in subsistence farmers now are, are having high levels of, of, of diabetes and other types of metabolic syndrome as well. And so we would work with patient education and tell them, okay, look, this is, you know, all you got to do is just eat like grandma used to eat when she grew up and you're going to pretty much reverse your disease that you have and you won't have it anymore. And people could hear that and it could understand it quite clearly but very few actually did it. And the ones that did reverse their diabetes and they come back to the, to the meetings and say, hey, look, I can see again. Yeah. <laughs> I was almost blind, but now that I'm eating vegan, my vision has returned. And people say, how is that possible? And you know, we know that it's not only possible, but it should be expected from the research done back in the 40s at uh, in, in North Carolina with the uh, um, Kempner group who showed that using um, retinal photographs you can reverse diabetic retinopathy using a, an extreme form of a vegan diet but vegan nevertheless would do it. So what is it? It's, it's come to my mind, you know, what is it? I mean, we the diabetic clinic is packed. I mean, we had a, a meeting with a diabetic club at the at the district hospital in Arusha and and uh, Tengeru at the first inaugural meeting, and 250 people showed up. 250. Wow. And and, and you think we're people here? We're worried about malaria and TB and <laughs> cholera and all these other diseases, which do affect people. And we're worried about nutrition and malnutrition. Yes, malnutrition does affect children. And the poor people are affected from inadequate amounts of of food. Um, But once you get to be grown, what happens? Um, And it's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of opportunity because in Arusha, you, you just don't, Tend your backyard, and wild food crops start growing up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, I I I worked. I, I hired a, a local gardener to help me with my my garden, and he'll say, "Oh yeah, well yeah yeah oh yeah we eat this that's that's some chicha this, this and wild greens start growing in the yard, and passion fruit grows wild. It's a weed." Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> it's it's amazing. So you can get plenty of, uh, of 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 good food here if you just have access to land. And I, I think that's one of the issues. Access to access is always the issue now with the urbanization of, of the populace. But I think we have to take a deeper dive, Nicolette, a deeper dive than that. So if we've got the family, the knowledge of that, why the question is. Okay, so why don't you, and I said, go ask grandma. Grandma, well, how do I fix this food? Grandma made you food growing up. She knows all the recipes and how to eat everything. Why are you you eating that? 
it's still ingrained into, I think it's a part of, of um, the socialization of people to want to eat in a modern way. It's not just that. Um, uh, I think, well, let me talk about that and then I'll get on to what I think is even the deeper level. Mm -hmm. I think what happens is that we are, as a part of, as a, as a product of colonialization, have been um, conditioned to believe that that which is modern, that which is brought by the colonists, that which is brought by the overall Occidental society is good and is to be valued mm -hmm. and is modern and is the way to go. It's the, it's the source of the good life. And those uh, colonized people or enslaved people seek to emulate the colonizers mm -hmm. because we, we have been taught that what they do is good and what they do is best. And so we want to eat like they eat. Mm -hmm. And we measure to, to a large degree our success by how we can emulate them, whether in being dressed, whether it be in, 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 in employment, whether it be in entertainment, whether it be in consumer goods, uh, whether it be in social or sexual practices, uh, religious practices, as well as dietary practices. And so what I do think is happening is that to a very large degree, the way people choose what they eat is, to, to, is directly related to the degree of their colonialist, colonized mentality or enslaved mentality. How well their the mentality has been adjusted to that of those who come in to take over, um, and 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 their and our um, desire to emulate um, the those who have, have taken over, we seek to emulate them in every way, and diet is just one way. Mm -hmm. So you would say, so the, the attitude would be, well, why would I want to eat that primitive, uncivilized diet? Mm -hmm. That's not, that's what poor people, ignorant people eat. Yeah. Uh, that Those plants and those roots. That, that's not the modern way of doing things. And so what you see here is that you see people spending huge amounts of money on meat. Um, and they'll, 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 I mean, Guys will go to work and they'll come home. They'll, they'll make say like ten thousand, fifteen thousand shillings a day. And on the way home, they'll stop and they'll spend five thousand shillings for a kilo of barbecue goat, a kilo. And then they'll wash that down with another thousand shillings of, of beer. So, but before they've even gotten home, they've spent thirty percent of their food on dinner that day on yeah. food that's going to kill them. And if it's not Barbecue, it's fried. It's fried potatoes, it's fried fish, it's fried eggs. And so this is the modern way of doing it. And I think that's, to a large degree, what we've got going on. Um, well, I want to jump in and just ask you something about that then, because I saw it when I was in Malawi the last time. And I saw all the signs, the big billboards in the cities on the way to my grandmother's village. And it was um, 
you know, Nestle and the soya oil companies selling, you know, get your bag of oil in the little like plastic popsicle tube, you know, so people from the village would ride like kilometers and kilometers and kilometers to go to the closest city to buy oil so that they could fry their food. And yes, we know fried chicken, fried vegetables, fried anything, it does have a very different taste than just eating the vegetable if it's cooked a little bit in water or if it's stewed. So I'm curious if you think just that our flavor profile, like is it a food addiction to that flavor as well now that has, you know, beyond the knowledge. So you can have all the knowledge in the world, but your taste buds overpower you. Yes, that's unquestionably true. Um, fried food is specifically addictive. Um, and that's very, very well known within the food industry. Um, and if you go back, if you look at, I mean, there's a popular book now, um, um, Fat, Sugar, and Salt. Mm -hmm. um, I've got it on my shelf here. Um, um, talks about how the food industry specifically tailors foods for the specific proportion of fat, sugar, and salt to um, cause addictive relationships to the food. So French fried potatoes or chips are specifically a highly addictive food. You, it activates addiction centers in the brain just like any other drug. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, you do become physically, psychologically, emotionally addicted to um, um, fried foods um, or foods with salt and sugar. Or, mm -hmm. You say French fries, you don't think salty, sugary. But when you eat the starch with the fries, it quickly turns into sugar in your system. So you you do get that. This called a bliss point effect. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you know, we are physically addicted to those types of foods as well as psychologically, emotionally addicted and socially conditioned to crave those things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's very, very important consideration. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, I could see that in working with my patients um, um, in the in the 80s and early 90s, in the 90s, and I can say, well, people are acting like addicts. Um, you tell them this, and they just can't stop. And then I realized myself, yeah, sure, I'm straight up addicted to potato chips. And um, <laughs> so I started studying addiction medicine, Whoa. and I started practicing addiction medicine for a while, and became very active in the field. Um, to understand how to approach the addict, and and that very much very much influences my my practice today. Um, so yeah, yeah, addiction is a really big component, and I think any type of program that's going to interdict this type of issue is going to have to understand principles of addiction and how you address the addict. Thank you for bringing that up. That's um, something that hasn't been brought up yet throughout these interviews. And, you know, in Canada, and I know in many parts of the U.S., access to food is one of the reasons why there are such high diabetes rates, because you don't get access to fresh, real food. You can't access the foods that your grandmother ate because people were thrown off their lands when the colonizers came they were put on the worst lands possible where they couldn't grow food. They were removed from their practices of growing and hunting and, well, mostly gathering 
a little tiny bit of hunting. Um, that's, a, you know, a, I think a misrepresentation in our current day history to think that people mm -hmm. were big hunters and, you know, and minimal gatherers where it was the opposite. So in Canada, people, you know, yeah. you know what, like one participant said, you know, if the only thing to eat is the Pop-Tart or the, you know, box of sugary cereal because it's the only thing you can get in a store well what do you do right in that situation for a lot of people who are of color in our country mm -hmm. yeah and then, 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 then we're talking it's a political issue um it's an economic issue um and it's it's an issue of why um why are those why can't we get those good foods I mean, I remember, for example, that that even plays out in, in suburban America. Um, in Atlanta, I lived in probably the overall most affluent black neighborhood in the country in terms of numbers of, of wealthy people. Um, I mean, there's a lot of poor people also in that neighborhood, but overall, the, the numbers of people earning over $100,000 a year was very high. Mm. Yet, there was no natural food store. Actually, there was one natural food store in the area. There was a tiny mom-pop store that was running down. But they're opening whole foods and fresh this and all these other national health food stores all over Atlanta, but never in that neighborhood. Mm. And so why? Why not? And there's plenty of great locations to have opened. It's not like there wasn't commercial space available. I mean, it was wonderful. They should put a Whole Foods there. I mean, this business is going out of, I mean, it's a perfect place for a Whole Foods. They wouldn't do it. So there's there's a political will also. Um, there's a direction of, of a corporate direction on doing it um, as to, you know, why aren't they, why aren't they opening this stuff where? I, I, I think the, the, the the biggest I, there was one other topic I want to talk about. If you don't have any other questions on that line, no, There's you spiritual go. Aspect. Yes, please, let's talk about that. Because what we know, and I and and I remember one of my favorite quotes from my one of my favorite authors, Gabriel Cousin, uh, from his book uh, Conscious Eating, which is basically the Bible of, of vegan and raw vegan nutrition. If you haven't read it. Um, it's it's essential reading for anyone that's, that, that wants to know how to go about eating vegan and eating raw vegan and why. Um, but he says, um, what you eat is both the cause and effect of your consciousness. Mm -hmm. The cause and the effect of your consciousness. So... We know that, and he outlines this well in the book, that eating certain foods engenders certain spiritual and psychological and emotional states. Mm -hmm. And conversely, certain psychological and emotional states tend to drive one to choose certain foods. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, just uh, excuse me for becoming pedantic, but oh. uh, a, a little teaching is, uh, will help here. Uh, one of the best um, 
paradigm for understanding that was with the uh, Ayurvedic paradigm, understanding the uh, doshas of food, not the doshas, the, the gunas of food. Mm-hmm. The gunas are the, the, the spiritual aspect of, of the foods that you eat. And the three basic gunas, there's the, and that my pronunciation, this is completely incorrect. So please, those who know how to pronounce these words properly, excuse me. We um, forgive you, and it's correct. <laughs> tamasic and rajasic, the three basic um, um, types of foods. And when you eat a sattvic food, it tends to engender a sattvic state of mind, a sattvic state of being. Uh, a tamasic food, a tamasic state of being, and so, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so those basic states of being corresponded broad basic categories of food. Um, the, um, what you find is that people who have a predilection to a certain mental state are going to be very unlikely to choose the food outside of that mental state gonna. Mm. You naturally are drawn to eating food that reflect your pre-existing mental state. So, and if you eat, if you are forced to eat a certain way of food, it's going to change your mental state. Mm-hmm. So, basically, sattvic means is, is the state of, of 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 samadhi, of peace, of harmony, of inner 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 um, um, elevation to a higher spiritual level. Those are the states that you that the that, that the. the Excuse me. The rishis and the sages and the priests would 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 t- try to acquire. Um, the the tamasic is a state of of of, of poor um, mental, physical, and spiritual hygiene. It's a sp- it's a state of degeneration. It's a state of fear. It's a state of loathing. It's a state of of degeneration. Um. Rajasic, and these are very broad categories. Of course, I mean, there's a lot of overlap, but in general, those, and, and, and my explanation of them is pretty rudimentary. But Rajasic is a state of the, the warrior, of the aggressive, the hyperviolent, the, the, the um, um, type A corporate raider, the, uh, um, um, all the, um, UWC fighter, those who are very aggressive, very violent. And the foods that would correspond to those are the rajasic foods, are foods like raw, fresh meat. No, I said raw, fresh meat. Mm-hmm. Raw, Not fresh cut. fish, sushi. Um, and there are also drugs that correspond to those things as well, like cocaine is rajasic, mm. for example. Um, where as sattvic is processed foods, preserved, no, excuse me, tamasic. Tamasic foods are processed foods, preserved foods, old foods, spoiled foods, overly cooked foods, mm. um, foods that are typically found in fast, that are found, the only foods that are found in fast food restaurants are tamasic. All food found in McDonald's is tamasic. 
all foods found in any of the fast foods are tamasic. Whereas the sasic foods are living foods, vegetable foods, plant foods, flowers, berries, um, natural, unprocessed, um, vegan foods. Those types of foods engender, engender a higher level of consciousness, a higher level of inner peace, a higher level of harmony, and a higher level of connection with the divine. So how do I think that plays into, into the question at hand? How do, how, how do I think that makes a difference? Well, if you are in a situation where your, your, your environment is forcibly degenerate, is forcibly um, violent, is forcibly under, under, um, under attack, if there's discord in your life, um, if you are into a substituted spiritual entity that tells you that you are a negative person, that d denies the true um, um, uh, sacredness of all things and all beings, and only makes that which is sacred to that which you get in the church. And then therefore that what you do and who you are is degenerate and bad and evil. You believe that. Then you are your 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 spiritual, your religious education or miseducation um, is separating you from your true spiritual nature and is engendering a tamasic state of being. Mm -hmm. So if you go to church and, and I and I always reflect what we, a lot of there's a lot of um, Pentecostal and other um, holy roller churches in this area and they get on the on the loudspeaker at 5 a.m. in the morning and one of the things you always do when you can choose a place to live is go at five in the morning yes <laughs> go out be able to hear yeah uh what it sounds like before you live there wish i had done that with the first place i lived because <laughs> these guys will get on the on the loudspeaker and blast the sermon and my key swahili is very rudimentary but even if it were, I could barely understand it because they're just so angry. And they're like, wait a minute. That's what you're, that's what you're pushing out on your people spiritually. Yeah. So that's a, you're, you're, you're feeling that tension in you. So your choices of food would naturally reflect your state of consciousness. Yeah. So you'll choose foods that reflect that, old food, stale food, fried food, overcooked food, and then that re-engender, and it's a cyclical pattern. So I think it's, we have to address the spiritual aspects of, of how we're of food. And I think at the end of the day, to be quite blunt with you, that I think that the dietary practices of, of, of um, Indigenous people are a consequence of their colonial state mm -hmm. and, are, and are a consequence of the colonial system of domination and control. And, and are not just incidental, but intentional, yeah. um, um, those practices, because they tend to debilitate and, and, 
and injure the populace and to make them sick and make them, and they tend to decrease the amount of well older wise people who can spread the indigenous ways and because people die sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the, at the end of the day, I think the answer is uh, regaining sovereignty, sovereignty over the land that we live in, the sovereignty over our culture, the sovereignty of the choices that we make, restoring our natural indigenous spiritual, economic, and as well as, of course, nutritional practices, those are going to have those are the key issues to help restore the diet. I think as long as we are in a state where we have um, you know, a colonial system of maintaining a propaganda machine that's pushing a business, pushing business products, pushing economic, spiritual, social, and cultural value systems that are in themselves tamasic, to use that term. Yeah. then we are going to end up choosing tamasic foods and we're going to tend to engender that state of being. If you look at traditional um, Native American, traditional um, African practices, we're all highly attuned to and vibrational frequency with the sacred nature of all things. Um, highly attuned to being peaceful and, and in harmonious with the environment. Mm-hmm. And that state of mind is the essence of a, of a peaceful state of mind. And that state of mind will tend to lead one to eating a peaceful, plant based, fresh food way of eating. And that, again, that way of eating will tend to engender that state of mind. So I think, you know, the, the answer is, is, is basically, um, you know, how, so what are we going to do today? You know, you and I are going to say, okay, we need to have a revolution. Although maybe that's what we need. Um, uh, we, 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 uh, but how are we going to help people in the meantime? And that becomes a very, very difficult question. I don't have the answer to. Hopefully, some of your other um, speakers have had some ideas. But I think at the end of the day, you know, if your consciousness has been falsified. You're, you're, you, you've had a, a supplanting of your basic values of peacefulness and harmony with environment with those of of those of the uh, colonizers. Then you're going to end up wanting to emulate them. And one of the main ways to emulate them is to eat like they project themselves mm-hmm. to be eating. Um, not necessarily if you want, look at the, the hyper-rich, they're probably all secretly raw vegan anyway at this point because they're smart enough to realize they want to stay healthy. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm really, I'm so glad you you brought this up because it isn't, uh, it, it went, it's been touched on lightly by the other participants, um, but not, nobody dove into it as deeply as you did. And I love the fact that you brought Gabriel Cousins into this with what you eat is both the cause and effect of your consciousness. And through your storytelling, through sharing this, you know, it brought me to this place where, I mean, I can see the diagram, I can see the circle, right? So it's that cause and effect, but it's like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, they say, you know, and, and now it's like, what comes first, Mm -hmm. right? Is it like the fruit or the vegetable, the legume, like, you know, and, and it's now to change 
um, well, what I see is this 12 step program similar to AA, but for people Mm -hmm. with food addiction almost, but where, like you said, you know, nobody has had an answer. There's not one answer because this is such a complex situation because we are complex humans in a complex history, in a complex time. And it's true. We have all these social, economic, political, um, environmental um, states that are upon us that there's not one answer to this. But it makes me think, though, through what you just said is the spiritual aspect of it and my clients who heal and reverse their disease, they often do say this to me because it is a plant-based diet that they use to reverse their diseases, chronic diseases, very advanced diseases. We have a lot of juicing as part of the program, a lot of cooked food, a lot of raw food, and they heal, they reverse their diseases, but they do arrive. Usually if they stick with it long enough to reverse their disease, one day they call me and all my clients do this and they go, I get it. We are all one. We are all connected. This is not about reversing the disease. This is a spiritual endeavor. So, but I don't know if I could, if I had led with that first, if they had, would have, you know, made the changes in their behavior and their lifestyle. They were scared. They didn't want to die from their disease. They didn't want to be put on any more medications. So it was very much a physical health related, like physical health related uh, reason to make the changes. But I don't know. You just make me think about what if we did lead almost, and I hate to use the word religion, but leading from that, that spiritual state of being first, because we're also in a place in society where people are alone. They are lonely. They need community. They are more isolated than ever. And Some people don't even care that they have a disease. Many of my clients say, I don't care. I'd rather just die instead of actually do the work to change my my state of health. But what I think they're really calling for is spiritual connection. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. There's not one answer, I think. There's many answers and there's many paths to the, you know, to that same end result. But this is one that I think is very, very important for this research i think what you're saying is it's very important to make the distinction between spiritual and religious Mm -hmm. Um, because religion isn't the answer it's not about religion yeah it's about devotion it's not about spirituality much of what we see in in terms of the church is about devotion to the church devotion to control devotion to be involved in the, in the economic and, and political um, um, activities that the church is advancing. Um, it, you know, and I, and I would, that, that takes me back to, if I might digress this very slightly, back, I remember the first time I was in Ghana and uh, uh, we, they take you, of course, they take you to the coast to you see all the slave dungeons, et cetera. One of the things that was most poignant to me was they showed us the, they took us to the the first Anglican church in Ghana. And that first Anglican church was literally in a slave castle. 
And so it said to me, well, they're using, they're teaching Christianity to people they're enslaving. And I've seen that over and over again. I think one of the things I notice here is that the people who are the most involved in the church have the worst diet. And that's what I've seen here. The religious you are, the worse you eat. And they're they're, they're churchgoer. They're very religious. And when they go to church, they eat all, all this tomatic food. Yeah, no, I think I got that. You cut out a little bit there, but I did understand that, which brings me back to what you said earlier, you know, eat like your grandparents, but, and eat like the peasants, but you got to eat like the original, the original peasants going way back before colonization, before the introduction of these refined process colonized foods and you know you got to eat like the poor like really the poor of the poor the ones who only had access to the fruits and the vegetables off the trees and the bushes and the root vegetables and really had like there was minimal to next to no processing um but within that you know we put out a documentary called the grounded in my roots which is looking back to your ancestors to really see what they ate. But it was interesting because when I showed it to people of color, they immediately got it. They were like, oh, my granny used to cook this. And they remembered. But when I showed it to white people, they would say, but what if you don't have ancestors? Like, we don't have ancestors. Yeah, And I was like, what? You know? What do you mean you don't? Of course, even if you're Irish and Scottish and British and French, you have ancestors that go back, but you don't want to look to the wealthy religious people. You don't want to look to the wealthy royalty. You need to look back to the poor peasants to understand really the foods that heal the body and keep you free of disease. But I wonder if one of the major reasons why we also see these epidemic rates of these chronic diseases is just the fact that we don't have the elders that remember those foods anymore. Perhaps it is. I would would say to you that it's not just the peasantry. It's the average person, um, you know, who ate both ways. Uh, only the hyper rich would eat that rich diet. Mm. Um, and so not just the poor, but the, the working class average people would eat the plant-based diet indigenously pre-colonial time. So, yeah. I mean, we had this image that, you know, prior to colonialism was a mass of poor. No, I mean, there's, People were doing well, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're poor, but there were also people doing well, right. and and they ate well too. They ate plant based as well. So, yeah, and it's and that I think you, culturally. Well, I was just it brought the it brought up ahead. you know there's a term that you know we often hear people say that health is wealth, right? But when you reverse that, what we are seeing and what we're saying right now is wealth is equal to poor health. And so 
you know, and lack with that lack of knowledge. And so the more wealthier you become, the more French cuisine restaurants you want to dine in on, which has more meat and more seafood, more of that tomasic food that, you know, you're paying for, but then you also pay the price in your health as well. So yeah, health is wealth, but wealth is not health. Yeah. And it's, it's and it's not just actually having wealth, it's wanting to emulate wealth. Because mm. that way we have the poor people here. They think if they eat a lot of barbecue meat, that they're acting like they're wealthy. They feel wealthy. Yeah. But they're actually quite poor. Because yeah. I mean, you know, it's you make eight dollars a day and you come on the way home, spend seven of it or three of it on one meal of meat. You know, it's <laughs> it's, an, it's, a, it's amazing how many people how many people do that. So with the work that you do with your uh, patients, with your clients, you know, how do, how do you start off? The conversation with them and and especially while you were in the united states you know you had seven and a half minute appointments 15 minute appointments and people are coming in for these preventable and reversible diseases how did you start the dialogue off with them well when i was in my own private practice i didn't have those types of appointments uh, my initial my shortest appointment was an hour um, in my private practice, uh, my initial appointment with people was three to four hours. Uh, so we would talk about everything. Um, one of my disillusions with standard medicine was that you only had those few medicines. I was uh, living in the Bay Area and working for the uh, East Bay, Alameda County um, um, medical system, and I worked in the, a large uh, multidisciplinary uh, clinic called Eastmont Medical Center. E Eastmont Wellness Center. What a name! <laughs> they had no idea what wellness meant, but it, it, it was it was put in a defunct shopping center. It was in the space of a Macy's or, or something. I mean, it was a huge clinic. I mean, it was like at any given time there were twenty five or thirty doctors working in different specialties. And I remember. Um, at any, I was working in the adult uh, adult medicine department. At any given time, we'd have five doctors work, um, and we'd all sit in the same room, and we'd have our little desk, and we'd work at it. And uh, and it was busy as hell. And the nurses used to hate me because I would spend as much time with the patient as I had available. And so. Um, but they, there was one doctor in particular who they loved him. He'd show up 45 minutes or an hour late and leave an hour early, but they loved him because he would be in and out with the patient. And speak with the patient, had no idea what they were being treated for. They had no idea what their medicine is. Um, they just here, take these pills, and he'd go in, he'd in and out and leave. And interestingly enough, to show where that whole system was, that, that doctor won Doctor of the Year Award. And... Whereas I was, my medication usage was the lowest among people seeing adult medicine and lower than many patients, many, many doctors seeing pediatrics. So I was in the low, low range of doctors who were seeing children, not just adults. And uh, I got a lot of flack from that. 
the patients come in and they're not really expecting the doctor to talk to them. <laughs> they're just not. Um, and and interesting enough here, in 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 in, in Tanzania, in Arusha, they, the doctor doesn't even touch them. Most patients have never have been touched, but physically contacted by they only shake their hand. We're not talking about take their blood pressure, examine them. They don't even touch. Most of the doctors don't even have a stethoscope here, in the, in, the, in the in the government hospital. They don't carry a stethoscope. Who right. does who does their checks then? Like what's happening? They aren't touched. You know. So this is they, what they I might have their blood pressure taken by the nurse, but they're not. They don't get a physical exam. Yeah, and this is something uh, I've read a lot about narrative medicine in my research over the last, you know, 15 years and how, you know, like you said, you would get a patient and you would talk to them, you know, your appointments are three hours long or as, lo as much time as needed. And where you get to hear the stories of your patients, you get to talk to them and get to know them. And within that, there's so much information so that you get to understand okay, what would be the treatment for that person with diabetes? For one, it just might be lack of knowledge. For another one, it's community needed. Another one, it's spiritual connection. Another one, it's uh, trauma, right? We know a lot of people with diabetes have a long history of colonial trauma, intergenerational trauma. So then when you hear this through the practice of, of communication and narrative medicine, then you can appropriately, you know, treat or or work with that patient whereas it's true like here too doctors don't even look up from their computer they just have to look at their computer and take notes while they ask questions yeah. they're not even looking at the patient yeah. so i see mm -hmm. that yeah that's huge. right yeah so that actual act so of I mean, medicine how do you practiced. within the, the going to see i mean I remember in public health school, one of the, the most influential writers I read was uh, Ivan Illich and uh, his book, Medical Nemesis. Mm -hmm. And since then, what he wrote in that has panned out true is that essentially for the, the medical system is more harmful than it's good to begin with. Um, so going to see a doctor is actually, for most patients, most people, you're worse off going to the doctor than not going to the doctor. Um, and that's, I mean, and I say very quite, I say it quite, quite clearly, and I say that with the numbers, because if you look at the cause of morbidity and mortality in the United States, um, the doctors are the number three cause. Yes. Um, it directed by direct intervention from doctors is the number three cause of death. Um, and I could play that out further, and you know, you could put up a reference for that. Um, but um, so. If you don't have heart disease or cancer, then by going to see a doctor, you're increasing your rate of dying. Yeah. Because if you didn't go see a doctor, you wouldn't have that third cause. And even if you do have heart attack or heart disease or cancer, you're still not likely to get healed by going to see a doctor to begin with. So seeing a doctor, in my mind, is not the answer to getting healthy. Um, you're best avoiding MDs. Uh, the best avoiding doctors in general, uh, whether that be chiropractors, acupuncturists, herbalists, anyone, you best the best thing you could do 
is to take care of your own health, is to listen to what your body's telling you, take care of yourself properly, learn to take care of yourself properly. Okay, so yeah. that that brings up another really interesting point, which I have to ask your opinion. Today in 2022, do humans have enough intuition and that self-awareness to be able to look within, given the vast amount of marketing over the last hundred years in the food sector, given the vast amount of marketing by the pharmaceutical industry, given the fact that we've put doctors on a pedestal as knowing everything there is to know about the human body. So, you know, we've done this. So are we just a shell of a human now or, or do, can we access that intuition? Cause I know when people say to me, well, I'm craving meat, so I'm going to eat meat. And they think that's their intuition talking to them. And I, you know, like, well, so, so I don't know, like, it, well, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think if you're not in touch with your, your, your true spiritual nature, then what's in the matrix is going to overwhelming, overwhelm you. The matrix being that which is around you, the, 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 the public, the, 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 the mass media, the edge schools, the churches, et cetera. They're going to overwhelm you with their information and confuse you and keep you in a delusional state. Um, and so, and that's what they're very good at. And they practice that. And that is their goal to separate you from your essence, your spiritual essence. So if, however, you are in touch with your spiritual essence, we as human beings have intuition. You might call that um, instinct in animals. Mm-hmm. We intuitively understand, know what to take, know what to do. We, through our, I call it ancestral memory. Um, others might call it epigenetics. Um, we, we understand what we must do to stay healthy and to be healthy. And we understand and know on a deep knowledge level, what will happen if we don't take care of ourselves, follow what I call your rule book and use the guide for healthy living. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that's the, actually the title of my book. Uh, I'm working on the second edition now called uh, The Rule Book and Use a Guide for Healthy Living. Yeah. Um, you know what's going to happen if you, you intuitively, on a deep cellular level, understand what you need to do to stay healthy. And if you are in touch with your your essence, you're gonna start. You're gonna automatically start looking to do those things to make you. It's built in, just like you know, animals know how. Why do we think we? Why do we suddenly think human beings don't qualify with the basic wisdom of other 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 animals have? Animals know when to migrate. They know when to to do what to etc. They know what to eat. They know what to do. And they get that from other animals, but sure, it's built in. They know what it's built into us too. If we basically follow what our minds—not what our observational skills from just paying attention 
to what our bodies are telling. That, that's the power, one of the power of meditation um, that I think is extremely powerful. Um, specifically, uh, Vipassana teaches you to pay attention to your bodily sensation. I mean, if you, you, if you are able to listen to and pay attention closely to and respond to the messages that you're getting through your body, through your intuition, through your dream state, and, 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 and do what you need to do, you're going to naturally gravitate to a healthy state. You don't need a doctor. You don't need anyone else. You don't need me or any other doctor. You don't need a naturopath. They, they don't even, they don't need you, Nicolette. They don't need anybody. We don't need any of us. Um, and that's, that's the beauty of, of the wisdom that is built into us. You know, that is the beauty of our, our spiritual connection with divine knowledge and divine information. And that's why we're sick. Ultimately, we've lost that connection. Once we, once we restore our connection with spirit, restore our connection with divine wisdom and divine um, um, ways, natural ways of being, we're going to naturally gravitate towards doing things that are healthy, naturally move away from, uh, from um, uh, uh, addictive things, and we're going to naturally refuse and slough off being enslaved to wage slavery or shadow slavery or accepting a, colonize, a colonial imposition of a colonial structure to exploit our labor and our land. We'll just naturally, it just, we just can't, it just won't work. And that's why when you go to the areas that are colonized, the institutions that they put in there are designed to falsify your consciousness. Churches and schools. That's where they put the money into. And that's why when you, when the colonists, colonists come in, they come in with guns and Bibles. Because they understand that they've got this. In order to impose a colonial state on people, they have to disconnect us from our spiritual connection to, to, to all that is sacred, which is nature. And that's the only way to get us to accept living in these ways and doing things that are in violation of our own people, our own land, and, and in service of those who come over to take over and dominate us. Yeah, you've, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I've been teaching, you know, metabolic nutrition and detoxification for the last 15 years to my clients. And that's what I lead with, right? It's it's the thing that I can hold. It's tangible. I can bring my clients into the kitchen and we can chop vegetables together. And it's, you know, they can leave with these skills. Um, but it, this conversation with you has led me to realize that, you know, I need to add very many more days onto all of my workshops and my sessions with my clients to really just sit with them and to allow them to feel and allow them to get in touch with, with themselves and that intuitive nature. And by doing that, I know that their, that their healing will happen so much faster. And I mean, it's hard to be everything to everyone, right? Like there, there's so many complex aspects. And for some of my clients, you know, poverty is literally one of the things that prevents them from being able to access healthy food. 
where their food budgets are like $47 a month. And I'm like, okay, what can you do for 47 or $147 a month? Okay. So like eat potatoes and eat, um, you know, collard greens and, and eat that. But, you know, they've come to believe that it's cheaper to eat the fast food than it is to eat those whole foods. So sometimes we're dealing with the economic, but you have made me in this, you know, hour and 18 minutes together um really want to yeah just rework how I do everything with my clients and really address this you know the thing is is that when people come to you one of the things I realized when I was working with people they come with an expectation yes and if you don't give them that expectation no matter what you give them they're going to be unsatisfied and they're not going to come back and not going to send you people. Right. That's true. <laughs> and so, um, but often that expectation is not what they need to get what they want, what they think they want. Does that make sense? No, it does. And it's true. My clients come to me because they get results. They don't have to come back because they've gotten results. So they don't have to be bounced around the medical system. They don't need to be bounced around between different practitioners, whether it's natural paths or, you know, even Ayurvedic medicine or, you know, traditional. They, they just, they do. They know what to eat. They know how to shop again. They know how, you know, they know what to put in their body. So then they tell other people. And so for me, it's been rewarding. I know for them, it's been rewarding, but I do want to have this closer connection to my clients and to really. What you have, if I may interject, you have a subset, you have a, a section of the population that, sub, that selects what you do because of how you do it. Mm -hmm. That's going to be, a, that's a very tiny percentage. Yeah. That will choose the work that you're doing and the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're trying to make a dent in the public health issue, you've got those 80% of people, they're not looking for anything weird. No. They're not looking for anything odd. They want to go to a doctor. They want a pill. They want to get the hell out of there and try to spend as little time as possible. Um, and they're not looking to emp be empowered in themselves. They're not looking to learn anything. They're not looking, they're looking to solve their problems. Mm -hmm. their problem is they're afraid because someone told them you're going to get the sugar you're going to get the, get the pressure um you're going to get the, you're going to get the cancer and if you don't go to your doctor you know you're gonna you're gonna get sick and die and so that's their concept and so their concept is go to the doctor i've got a pill and that's take that's solving the problem and that's what people have been conditioned to. And if you're not, but 80% of the people, if not, not more, and then and another 15%, they will talk about doing other stuff, talk about getting nutrition, they'll talk about learning to become vegetarian, they'll talk about learning to meditate, they'll talk about doing yoga, but they'll never do it. Mm -hmm. only 5% of people were going to come to you anyway and are going to make a change. You may be, so what I found is that I found three quarters of the people, another, another 
only that top 20% would ever even think about coming to me to begin with. And then three quarters of the people will talk about it all day. They'll agree, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's right. But three quarters of that 15% or 15% of 20 is three quarters of the patients that that's 20% that would possibly come to see me. They're not going to do anything anyway. Mm-hmm. So people ask, what kind of success rate do you have in treating this, that, and all that? I said, it's dismal. <laughs> it's dismal because most people don't do what they don't follow the advice I give yeah. them. You know, and so if you come in and you actually do what what I suggest you do, and here's the other thing. That five percent, one out of twenty people, they've already been searching before they come. That's a hundred percent true. They yeah. are and, and many of them they know more than I know. Yeah. You know, uh, they come in and ask, look, I should be paying you. <laughs> <laughs> I get that all the time. You know more than I know. Yeah. You know, so why are you coming to see me? Don't come to see me. Just do what you know already. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's a tough situation that we find ourselves in, you know, where, where we find that the changes, you know, if, if we can get the mass of society to be pushing people where the, the average person, what, you're eating meat? Why would you do that? Everybody knows you don't eating meat is bad for you. You know, and everybody they know doesn't eat meat. Then no one will eat meat. It's yeah. as simple. But yeah. as long as the mass majority of people eating meat and it's connect, 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 connected with being a part of the group that people identify with, they're going to keep doing it, and I don't think. And and I'm, I'm, you know, maybe I'm cynical. I don't think there's much we can do about it. Uh, the, the the group that we're trying to work with is that 20 percent, and try and make it instead of only only one out of four actually will make the change. Move that up to one out of two will make yeah. the change. If if that's where we can, that's where the work is going to happen. And that's that to me. That's profoundly sad. <laughs> well, and I, you know, and, and I, I don't have an answer for it. Yeah, and with you know within what you just said there, one of the pieces I just pulled out of that that I actually haven't thought about is, you know, we've gone from the 1920s in North America of not really having cars. Everything was basically horse and carriages up until that point no real laws and policies, lots of gun fighting and, um, you know, and, and people just shooting each other if they wanted to, to now with all of this technology that we have in a hundred short years, that I wonder too, if there's an element, because you said when people come to you, they often already have a lot of the knowledge that you have, or even no more. And that does happen to me as well, but the people are not practicing it. And sometimes my clients will hear what I have to say, and then they'll go, oh my gosh, I did this 20 years ago. I ate this way for like a few months or a year or two years, and it was the best I ever felt in my life. And I look at them and I'm like, how did you forget that period in your life when you felt so good and you ate this way and completely forget about it? Which makes me also think human beings now 
And I don't know how different it is from 100 years ago and 500 years ago and a million years ago. Do we just crave novelty? We just want that new thing that's going to be the thing, whether it's the one pill wonder or the cleanse or the diet or the, is it just craving craving novelty that also prevents us from, you know, eating this way, this clean way, this simple way, the way that keeps us free of chronic disease? Yeah, I think that, I think there's something to that. Uh, it's a it's a, a medical consumerism. Um, it's a it's a nutritional nutritionist entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so we 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 feel entitled to be entertained. Um, and we feel like we if we, our food isn't entertaining, our food isn't interesting, then we don't want it. It's not mm-hmm. worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, and the easiest way to make it entertaining and interesting is to make it addictive. Yeah. <laughs> so you just bliss point people out, and it's very entertaining. You yeah. know, dopamine relief every time you eat it. You know, it's like hey. So I it's, I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer, and hopefully one of the things that intrigued me about your 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 the direction which you're going is, is is essentially the questions that need to be answered. You know, how do you how do you how do you make change happen? And I, and I pray that you, you 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 gather insight and you're able to synthesize things in such a way that um, there you can there are action steps that that those of us who are interested in actually making an impact can take to actually make a benefit. But things that we've forgotten, things that we've overlooked, things that we don't do, or things that we do do that we don't emphasize enough. And I, I'm praying that, that you're gonna you're going to make an impact on that, and that's why I'm, 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 I'm sitting here today, and I'm basically laying out to you as plainly and as, as I can what I think is going on. Well, I have to thank you for taking this time. I know you're across the other side of the world in East Africa, and you have taken this time to share. You know what has been. I, you know, I've been referring to them as gold nuggets, but I hate using that term because of the connotation of gold and and what that means within our economic system as well. But so, you know, these these beautiful um, pieces that you have contributed, they are novel ideas that I haven't found in all of the literature that I've read over the last seven years of doing my doctorate. And so, and, and I do want to do that, pull the pieces out and turn them into action steps. And, you know, obviously, you know, I don't know which one I would start with first beyond what I'm currently already doing in my life, but there are so many pieces here that absolutely need to be addressed when working with clients, when building up programs for schools like we do, when building up programs, you know, for physicians like we do. Um, and so there's a lot more elements here that I would love to include in the work that I do that if I hadn't interviewed you, I would never ever I don't think come up with some of these pieces myself so I do have to thank you for taking well, the good I'm, I'm glad to have been of help yes no thank you are there any last words of wisdom of um you know advice that you want to leave our audience our podcast is heard in over 187 different countries we have people from all walks of life listening to our podcast they listen to the full hour and a half shows that we put out there 
you know, is it, what would you like to leave, um, leave our audience with today? Well, no personal appearance would be complete without um, brazen self-promotion. <laughs> so uh, you can find me at opare.net, O-P-A-R-E.net, opare.net, or .com, but I like opare.net. And then you can see it's a basic introduction to the work that I do. Um, and uh, we do, um, I, I do take consultations uh, by Zoom or WhatsApp um, remotely, and that's the majority of people that I, I do consults with um, is, is, uh, is remotely now. And um, I do have uh, uh, two books actually out now. Um, my first is the rule book and use the guide for a healthy living that, that outlines the rule book and use the guide paradigm that I talked about and a lot of other different topics. And uh, and another one is called the Optimum Fast, which is a handbook on how to do uh, all the juice fasting protocol that, that I use with my patients. Um, and then I've got uh, a blog and, uh, and, and uh, a, a blog on my, my on my site as well. So that's opare.net, um, and you can that's how you found me um, through the contact form or book a consultation. Um, and that, it's a nice site, and I think people will enjoy it. Um, also, um, there's a um, put a put a plug in for Tanzania. Um, come visit northern Tanzania. It's wonderful. People think of uh, uh, Africa is, is sweaty and hot, but uh, we live in a tropical alpine climate, and it gets it goes down into the to the the uh, well, sixties, sometimes the fifties every night, and rarely gets above eighty. Um, and uh, it's lush, it's green, and we're um, Arusha is, is the is the, the landing ground um, for um, safaris of all kinds. Arusha National Park is just up the road from me. It's a wonderful place. Um, um, all types of animals, and it's amazing. Um, and it's probably the easiest, high, very high mountain to climb anywhere in the world if you can hike. You can and tolerate the altitude. You can climb Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest point in Africa. There's no technical climbing at all. Um, to get up Mount Kilimanjaro, and it's just a hair under twenty thousand feet. Um, and then to the to the west is um, Serengeti, Ngorongoro Crater, Serengeti National Park, Lake Nyasa. It's just a wonderful place for outgoing. And then, of course, once you've once you've you have this part, then you can take a, a, a short flight down to the coast and enjoy the the, the, the tropical island paradise of Zanzibar um, and and chill out and, and and have a great time on the beach. So yeah, Tanzania is a great place to visit, and uh, y'all come on down now here. Yeah? <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
Well, I am going to come to Tanzania uh, because Malawi is just a hop, skip and a jump away. And that's where my family is. And so when I do come to Tanzania, I do hope to come and meet you in person, Dr. Opare. And we're going to put all the links love to your to books. You. Yes, I'd love to see you. Thank you. And we're going to put all the links to your books so everybody so Malawi, can access Malawi, about borders Tanzania. It is. We, we share the same lake. Lake Nyasa, yeah, isn't Malawi. that correct? Yeah, Lake Malawi. Nyasa. Yep. Yeah, it's... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, so definitely going to going to put the links in the um, show notes below and make sure that people can find you because you are a beautiful, rare gem in this world that has such a vast history oh, of you. knowledge. And the fact that you are sharing that knowledge with so many people, it's just a very beyond generous caring compassionate thing to in the world to be doing and we just need more and more people like you doing exactly thank that you. so thank, thank you, you so much for the work you're doing as well thank you uh, we, i appreciate that very much so yeah, keep I, on keeping on what you're doing thank you i will and i know you will too